What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Super excited to be talking about Civilized to Death. We have Christopher Ryan joining us on the show. Thanks. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Thanks so much for coming on the program. It's interesting to be here. We're surrounded by technology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Speaking of progress. Yeah. Yeah. Technology is doing a good job in some regards and technology is uh, civilizing us to death in other regards ain't that the truth ain't that true so i'm pumped so pumped to have you on to talk about this and also about uh the, your other um book that you uh co-authored uh a new york times bestseller uh, sex at dawn they kind of have a lot of overlap and um i'm excited to talk about that overlap for those that don't know um chris ryan's background he's the new york times bestselling co-author of sex at dawn podcast host of tangentially speaking they've done uh over 400 episodes now mm. week weekly since 2012 a great podcast take a listen and most recent author of civilized to death the price of progress which takes a contrarian stance that certain aspect of society's progress may actually be analogous to advancing a disease all right and you can find all the links in the bio below to the book and his social accounts. He does a really good job on his uh, Instagram of keeping people up to date on his Vanthropology, which yeah. is where he... Vanthropology takes, trips. Yeah. Vanthropo he's uh, in Scarlett Johansson. Oh, so you know it all. Yeah. <laughs> she's right outside. She's right outside right now. And you do your podcast on the road as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, we host get-togethers. So people who listen to the podcast can all come and meet each other and... It's all about forming community, right? Which is something I'm sure we'll talk about in terms of uh, prehistory. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I want to, I want to jump into things uh, actually from a very big picture perspective. This is typically what we like really like doing on our show. Um, let's jump into things from uh, understanding, like. We find ourselves uh, born onto this planet Earth, and we are obsessed right now with this question of trying to influence other people to think about it more. But what is the ultimate nature of reality? Why are we even here in the first place? What created this? Why are we here? And then we can get into all of the other um, stuff related to civilized to death and sex at dawn. But like, what are your thoughts about why are we even here in the first place and what created this? <laughs> <laughs> That's where we're starting? Yeah. <laughs> all right, I'm normally high when I talk about something like that. Uh -huh. Yeah, what created this and why are we here? Well, I'm not an astrophysicist, so I can't answer, you know, the way Bruce Damer might of the <laughs> origins of life and geysers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I, I don't really know why we're here, and I don't pretend to know, and I don't know what created us. I think it's quite possible that uh, the explanation is randomness and chaos, and out of chaos comes life and so I don't know I think Terence McKenna's theory that consciousness that life may be ubiquitous in the universe but consciousness spreads by ways of mushroom by way of mushroom spores for example mm. uh, and psychedelics I think that uh, is very interesting to me because there's certainly there's life and then there's conscious life and there um, I don't see evidence that all life 
leads to the kind of consciousness that we experience anyway. Um, but then uh, on the other hand, I, I think an animist perspective on life makes a lot of sense too, that everything is alive. Everything is imbued with some sort of spiritual um, presence. And um, yes. so I, I don't have any grand theories. I don't, I don't claim to be any sort of genius with, you know, maybe, maybe that disqualifies me from being on your show, but no, 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 not uh, at all. You know, I think I, there are a few things I feel like I figured out a few questions. I think I, I've asked in ways that other people haven't. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And, uh, but I don't think that, you know, I'm not qualified to comment on grand uh, questions, you know, beyond my own personal experience. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about these grand issues maybe more than than I had been. Uh, my father died about a year ago, and he knew he was dying, and we had some interesting conversations leading up to it. And um, I remember he asked me what I thought happened after death. Mm. And my father was raised Catholic and then lost his faith in college uh, and then I was born shortly after, and so his, you know, the, I forget who said this, but someone said, when you're raised in a religious tradition and then you lose your faith, there's a God-shaped hole in your consciousness for the rest of your life. Like some, this space that God had occupied was now empty, but the consciousness is already formed around it, you know. Anyway, I said to my dad that my feeling about death is that each life is like a raindrop and that raindrop at the end of its existence lands on the sea. Mm -hmm. So the raindrop ceases to exist, but the water that it contained merges with this greater mm. whole. And then the cycle continues and not necessarily that raindrop comes back in some sort of, you know, Buddhist reincarnation sense, but the essence that was contained in the raindrop doesn't mm -hmm. cease to exist. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to give him some comfort and it gives me some comfort. And, and I, that's, that's feels right to me, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, I feel like the, the more we learn about life, the more we realize that everything is multifactorial. Everything is essentially beyond comprehension if you really go down and dig dig into oh, it oh yeah uh there's a grain of truth in every perspective mm -hmm. so it's yeah you know the the mm -hmm. more i know the less i know that's that kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah the trying to grasp onto this uh understanding of what is the ultimate nature of reality even for those that are deeply materialist or evolutionary uh just to even get to that initial question of what created the big bang um and just trying to scientifically probe at it and also give room for spirituality and mysticism and magic along that journey as well has been something that i'm just extremely fascinated with and trying to pass along to to other people and inspire them and actually like meditation and psychedelics are a crucial component of that as well understanding mm. the nature of reality yeah and uh even what happens with near-death experiences what happens after death what happens before we're born what are these polarities what are this interval that seem like our heart potentially takes these you know two and a half billion beats of life between life and death which are so so interesting and so we just kind of like obsessively try and um push people into understanding this like do we come here with 
a purpose or a mission? Mm. Do I literally come in in adventure into consciousness, into this body for this mission of my consciousness learning these unique experiences that it's learning and contributing value to this physical world that we're endeavoring into? And then do we go and potentially cycle back into the school again at a later time uh, or go to other schools? And so this is kind of a very indigenous, but also spiritual, but also aiming to be more scientifically uh, probed at theme that we talk about a lot. Do you have any thoughts on that last segment that I just um, riffed on for a moment? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the the metaphor of the raindrop and, and how so many religious traditions... Uh, sort of come to the conclusion that uh, love is the purpose, mm-hmm. right? Finding ways to love. And, and I'm 57 years old now, and I guess you, you reached out to me, you saw me on Rogan's show very yes. recently, and Joe and I were talking about love. And, um, you know, I said something that he initially misunderstood. What I said was that the older, when I was younger, I thought that love was a very scarce commodity. And the older I get, the more I see that it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and he misunderstood me to, to think that I was talking about dating love, like finding a partner and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and he made the valid point, like, hey, a lot of people, you know, their lives are so structured, they can't, they don't have time. You, and mean, it's hard. you mean love in the literal interconnectedness of the fabric of existence? That's what I mean. Yes. I mean, I mean that the older I get, the more I recognize that, and Joe was talking about this as well, that everyone is lovable. Everyone is deserving of love. You see, you know, Joe was saying that since having children, he looks at someone now and he sees the little kid in them. He yes. sees the child yes. they were, yes. which then creates a sense of compassion because you can't blame the adult if you see the child who suffered so much that he or she got so twisted up into this person who's annoying or aggressive or whatever now you see it's ultimately nothing is anyone's fault yeah it's very which has radical implications for like the prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. and you know Mm -hmm. criminal law and all that Um, You can literally look at another human being and you can see if they're, let's say, around 30 days old or so, you can literally see their almost 10,000 days of life that they've lived up to that point. Mm. And then when you really do that, then you get this love at a deeper level because you get what are all these influences and stimuli that have affected this person's development that has then made it so that maybe... who their personality, their traumas, their treasures, their right. unique gifts that they're bringing right. to the world, what they're passionate about, their parents and their ancestral lineage. That's it. It could even go previous to their lives. We know now that there are epigenetic um, yep. alterations that, that come from several generations back. If your grandparents or great-grandparents suffered from a famine, you're more likely to be obese. I mean, it's very. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out now. Um, so yeah, I think that it, in terms of what you were riffing on there and this question of love, again, I think about the, the raindrops, right? Here we are, we're these individual raindrops falling from the sky in the course of our lives, mm. feeling the separation. Mm-hmm. And yet the ultimate truth that everyone seems to arrive at is that we are all one, <laughs> yeah. right? We're all the same. 
And that's the sea that we all came from and that we all end up in, yeah. right? So maybe this there's this memory of the unity yes. of of where we are between lives, yes, right? That we're trying to wake up to it's like it's like this dream we're in a dream and the reality is when we're all one so a lot of uh, people especially when we talk about you know spirituality or we talk about psychedelics or meditation a lot of people talk about this drop that is able to rejoin the ocean that's right. like a really um, frequent theme that comes mm -hmm. up and I, I think a really good way to put it that you're beginning to uh, make it more and more evident is that it could be that we come from the ocean of the clouds in the water cycle perspective, mm, right. go into these individual raindrops at endeavoring into these bodies of consciousness. And then throughout that process, we have the ability to do meditation or psychedelics or deep spiritual experiences, or even deeply scientific experiences, which take us out of our individual raindrops and kind of merge us into that feeling of the interconnectedness, but then for, and then ideas that as you hit the ocean that then that is the rejoining process and then potentially the water cycle continues right, it's just right. it's a very interesting way to put so it so love is is both a yearning for and a memory of and an experience of that uni unification that you might experience with individual other raindrops yes. but what it's really about is that water all flows into one and is liquid and this is a temporary state that we're in now yes um yes. And, you know, and that's a very important theme. I, I, I don't want to push you anywhere you don't want to go, go ahead, yet. Yeah, go ahead. But it's a very important theme in this book, actually, because, and in Sex at Dawn, honestly. I was about to yeah. bring this up. Uh, let's see yeah. if we we're maybe going into the same place. Well, th this idea that, that community is so deeply important to our species, mm -hmm. a sense of being embedded in a, in a community of loving, you know, mutually respecting people who are looking out for each other is so important to the survival of our species. Yes. And yet here we are in the 21st century, more people living alone than ever before. The sort of social structure that, that we're living within is separating us and wants us all to have our individual spaces because it wants us to spend as much money as possible on, you know, everyone has to have their own washer and dryer and vacuum cleaner and cars and television. You can't get together and share it. There are literally zoning laws prohibiting more than one family from living in a house even if it's a 15 bedroom house you know it's so that it, the world that we've created runs so uh so counter so much to counter to our nature exactly so that's what this book is about it's mm -hmm. like why have we how have we ended up in a world yes. that's so hostile to our deepest needs and and appetites yes yes yeah. and what are the forces behind that quote unquote progress uh and uh what are the um the, the really when you follow things like the money and when you follow things like people's uh spirit like what is really within the uh further propagation of the um, protocols that are making it less community oriented more robotic and ai driven uh you know why yeah. why um so uh let's let's um Let's hit this from another um, perspective, and then we're going to get into um, all this. It, it was kind of cool seeing it from when you were teaching about it again. I was seeing it like the raindrops 
have their beautiful um, individual relationships to other raindrops, which actually, you know, usually people find themselves closest in terms of love to their you know mom dad brother sisters their partner their spouse right their children these types of things you're really closest friends right this type of stuff and so you have you have to have spokes to all these other raindrops like nodes you know to all those other to the spokes to those other nodes and when you do your wheel can roll mm. but if any of these spokes are degraded then your wheel can't roll through life as easily. Hmm. And so uh, that's a crucial aspect to these relationships. And then also just let's go to, you know, hunter-gatherer days is such a, um, a crucial uh, uh, aspect of your worldview. And you, uh, like, actually love how you went to this super-duper uh, abstract uh, uh, way of trying to reconcile what we used to do as hunter-gatherers and our like anthropological archaeological lineages that lead us psychosexual lineages that lead us to uh our modern day and trying to like see how specific aspects of what we used to do versus what we do now and I think a good way to put this, because many viewers are are quite aware of this aspect, it's just we have people like uh, Steven Pinker that wrote Better Angels of Our Nature, which it just feels like, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson now and all these other people have just been telling me every time I've been trying to probe at certain aspects of that statement that are, you know, Michael Shermer's been another one that we've had on the show that we've, he's the ultimate skeptic. And we try and poke at like, you how can you just blanketly say that 100% of absolutely everything about life today is better than it was even, you know, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000, 100,000 years ago. It's just a very yeah. ignorant I think way to view it it's it's um it's a little too um uh it's faith based yeah yeah and that's what I find ironic about it that it's you know there's a thing a section in the book here where I, I place Richard Dawkins in a pulpit you know because so much of of his thinking as as I read it is faith based it's it doesn't stand up to scrutiny and uh, I think that's true of, of Steven Pinker, of Matt Ridley, and, uh, you know, I call them the Neo-Hobbesians, who uh, begin with the assumption that life is getting better and has always gotten better. With, you know, fits and starts and minor setbacks here and there, but in general, the trend has always been better, better, better. And, uh, you know, I... I take apart uh, The Rational Optimist, which is a book written by Matt Ridley, um, which basically makes that argument, you know, that's explicitly the argument of the book. And it's incredible when you see the, the, the twists that they put themselves in to make this argument. So Matt Ridley says, there's a, right at the beginning of the book where he's saying, look, life is clearly getting better, first of all. You know, we went from a species with 50,000, 100,000 individuals to 7 billion. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, come on, that's progress. And, and I'm Population like, is yeah. yeah, how is having more of us better for us? 
It might be better for some other super organism that, sure, you know. But some how people is argue the creativity, the meaning, the amount of interconnectedness uh, can get expressed. It's some sure, aspects. Sure, and, yeah. and those are yeah. interesting arguments to sure, make. Sure. And, and then I would have responses to each, each of those. Of those. Yeah, yeah. But the, the idea that more of a species makes it a more successful species is only relevant in a very limited biological sense that the dna of that species is spreading in that sense that's success but that says nothing about the experience of individuals within that species like and also the 10 million total species and how uh chickens and pigs and cows yeah. are just getting uh slaughtered right uh, right and, and but yeah, there are and, more of them so they yeah, must be better yeah. off so know? like this would be maybe a good way to maybe try and quantify it would be like uh, for the humans, at least, out of the 8 billion of us today, if you could have maybe a score for their overall um, health and wellness and prosperity, their overall score of 1 to 100, let's say, would the then average of the you know 1 million people that used to live 100,000 years ago, would the average collective score be 65 or 85 or today would it be 65 or 85 where do those scores rank yeah i i think i i don't claim to be able to answer that question definitively yeah but i think that it's a very uh, important question it's an important question which is dismissed by yeah, the faith-based crowd yeah, yeah, yeah uh it's a it's a relevant uh question and it's a complicated question for example in the last 10 days uh, I saw a report from UNICEF that said one of three children alive in the world today is malnourished. One in three. So like 2.5 billion children are malnourished? That's a lot. A lot of kids. Yeah. If we've been having progress for thousands of years since the advent of civilization, five, seven, ten thousand years, whatever your measure is, how... This is as far as we've gotten. One out of three kids is malnourished to the point where their bodies aren't developing, their brains aren't developing properly. Uh, that's insane. There's no way that we've been progressing. And if you look at hunter-gatherer kids, what you find is very little malnourishment, almost no malnourishment. And I quote uh, you know, primary sources with the Hadza in Africa and uh, tribes in the Amazon, anthropologists that went specifically to look at the health of children and they find these kids are great. No parasites, no, no uh, even older people, no heart disease, no diabetes, none of this stuff. Now, I'm not whitewashing hunter-gatherer existence. A lot of kids die. Yeah, yeah. They die. The child mortality rate is very high. Actually, right. you bring up the statistic, which I think is really interesting quickly to mention, is that a lot of people just say, oh, we used to live uh, 30 years, 35 years used to be the average life expectancy. Now you're living 75. So, yeah, progress, progress, progress. We've doubled the human lifespan. Doubled the human lifespan <laughs> is the argument. But then that... This is such a fascinating idea is that that took into account child mortality rates, which were significantly higher. So you would average in someone that dies at one with someone that dies at 70, which is why that number seems so low. Right compared to today, but really, um, if we can look back at anthropological and archaeological records, could it be that a lot of people that were healthy were living until they were 70, just like they are today? Definitively. There, there's no question about it. So a human being has never been old at 35, except maybe Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know. But <laughs> human beings, sorry, if he's a listener or a watcher, I don't know. Uh, but no, 
human beings, Homo sapiens, our average lifespan beyond childhood, or let's say our modal lifespan, the time, the number of years at which your body starts to break down, and if you don't die from one thing, you're going to die from something else, is between 70 and 80. Mm-hmm. That's natural to us. Chimpanzees live typically into their 50s, mm-hmm. as do bonobos. So the idea... And that's been a constant a pretty constant chimpanzees bonobos yeah. living about 50 since the dawn of time right they, interesting right. so they they haven't really had a like a life expectancy uptick so no. we basically need really true radical life um uh longevity uh, uh with things like uh, um taking our like 15 year old homeostatic capacity our body's ability to get back to equilibrium and we need to have that uh when we're 25 and 35 and 45 in order for our body to constantly be able to com- combat against pathology developing in order for us to uptick ourselves up to 120 or 160 in terms of life expectancy which then uh make it so that now we're talking real longevity increases yeah i'm very skeptical i know you've had aubrey du- gray on the show du- yeah. yeah 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 uh, i'm very skeptical of that that whole silicon valley movement toward <laughs> eternal life uh, <laughs> it's a bunch of bullshit honestly but uh i mean just to finish this yes, point here yeah. so so what people are led to believe and I, I taught in medical schools in spain where my students believed that you know, and I quote doctors from UCSF, like very elite institution, a doctor there saying, well, the reason that people have chronic back problems is that the human body wasn't designed to last this long. People died in their mid thirties and prehistory. And so that's mm-hmm. the, so people, educated clinicians who are working with these issues, believe that the human body was not designed to last beyond 40. That's not true. That is factually incorrect. And no one who understands this data is, is confused about this. This is mm-hmm. archaeologists, anthropologists, they all understand this. But when it comes into popular culture, it's a very powerful idea because it feels good. Mm. Oh, yeah, we've done so well. We've doubled our life. So whatever problems you have, you're not happy at work. You feel like your life is slipping away from you. You don't have any friends. Your your body's all messed up because this shitty food that you're eating. Look, you're living twice as long, right? (laughs) So stop your complaining. It's a sales pitch to get people to stop complaining. That's what it is. You're depressed because uh, the... Uh, you feel like a dopamine monkey behind your cell phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stop complaining. You're Stop living complaining. twice as long. <laughs> You're living twice as long. So, you know, my my point. Once I establish this this that this is a statistical, uh, statistically misleading factoid, I say if you're going to count a child mortality in your average, let's count abortion. Hmm. Abortion doesn't enter into our average lifespan calculations. Why not? Mm. Right? And this is no commentary on the ethical Mm -hmm. uh, arguments around abortion. I'm just saying a lot of the kids who died in prehistory before one, a lot of the skeletons that appear in these archaeological finds were children who were born, who were unhealthy, who had uh, birth defects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And hunter-gatherers would have let them die. Mm -hmm. Um, what do we do? We detect them in prenatal testing and abort them. So mm. why isn't that a relative 
or a relevant factor in our calculation. So we've been practicing eugenics in some sorts um, for sure. the longest time. And we, we want to breed hundreds of millions yeah. of babies are aborted around the world. Is that the number every year? Yeah, I don't. The numbers in the book. I don't hundreds remember. of millions. China and India. Damn. Girls are aborted. Healthy female fetuses are aborted regularly. In China, because of the one-child policy, and everyone wants to have a son, so now we've got hundreds of millions of boys without, uh, you know, girls. Partners, yeah, yeah. Um, and in India, just because of cultural bias against girls and and toward boys, um, one-child policy did just end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, the 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 real relevance of that argument is, I would say, twofold. One is just I I want people to understand. No, hunter-gatherers live into their 70s. Uh, and this, this notion that we've doubled the human lifespan is bogus. And much of the actual extension in uh, our lives, and relating back to my father, is, n is not in livable life. It's we die more slowly. So it's like, it's like basketball games. You know, you watch this basketball game, it's dramatic, it goes back and forth, it's really exciting. And then in the final like minute and a half, it takes half an hour mm -hmm. because of the timeouts, another TV commercial. They know they've got your attention. You're not going to change the channel. You want to see who wins. And the whole, the whole like meaning of the game is in the last minute and a half, two minutes, and it takes half an hour. Mm -hmm. It ruins the drama, ruins the experience of the game. That's what we've done with our lives. We, mm. we, we've got a medical profession that is operating under the assumption that death is the enemy to be fought constantly at any cost in human suffering and in, in material mm -hmm. sense. Uh, it's absurd. It's absurd. And, you know, I had to actually call my, my father's doctor and say, what are you doing? The guy's 79 years old. He's got kidney disease he's got heart disease he's you know he's on his way out and you're ordering more tests yeah. you're ordering more therapies yeah. you're sending him around the city to get all these treatments let the dude die mm. right i know he's got great insurance and i know you're getting a lot of money out of that mm. but enough mm -hmm. right you're torturing him for money for no reason Mm. Uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of people are facing that kind of situation in the United States and other countries. It's it's different. But in the United States, um, yeah, that palliative care um, oh, man. perspective is actually really important. We had Jess Sitter on the show and she was talking about these uh, these end of life um, uh, conversations that we need to have with our loved ones where uh, what if what if I literally just don't want to go through that process like you're indicating about your father maybe I do want to uh, just go out to the ocean or to the forest and I, I want that experience with a couple people that are close to me as right. I pass right. um, and like to have these so called like that sounds way more like hunter gatherer esque and that sounds way less like corporate metropolis transactional esque and so um and also um I, we need to we need to hit this point this point's so important um you mentioned this and i think this is again just such a crucial aspect to the to the conversation which is this idea that like we're being in a sense propagandize propagandists coming down our throats all the time about this is the best time to live period shut up you have all the best things now and it just basically takes us away from observing how it could have been better that what are the better aspects of how hunter gatherers lived and um 
before we get to this idea of like, okay, these aspects are better, which you're already talking about, but that these aspects were better, these aspects are worse about, about today, we can bring some of these aspects from what we were doing in the past, and we can actually implement them into what we are doing today to make life better. One of the things you brought up was community already, right? <clears throat> but especially as we build these AIs and we build the robotic age and the biotech and neurotech age and the VR age and all these quantum computing ages that we're building, it can actually be extremely beneficial for us to fish back and find the interconnectedness of everything, fish back and find our connection to nature, fish back and find our connection to each other and to community. Uh, and and just embed ethics and morals and and philosophy and spirituality in the uh, the technologies that we're building of tomorrow that are treating humans like they're obsolete and instead uh, uh, treat humans like the divine beings that they are. Yeah, I wonder if that's possible though. I wonder, like in your construction, we're building the technologies. I kind of feel like the technologies are building us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like, you know, like Michael Pollan makes this point in one of his books that, you know, you could say that humans have used wheat uh, and, there, you know, there's wheat all over the world because it's useful to humans. But you could also look at it and say, no, wheat has used humans yeah. to spread itself. Getting back to this question of, you know, is the absolute number of a species a measure of its progress? If so, wheat has been incredibly successful. And something even older than that is our microbiome. Sure. Yeah yeah. 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 So there, there are these questions of who's using whom and yeah, what's happening here. Um, it's yeah. all so in interconnected like that of who's using well, who like that. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole section of this book that I ended up taking out mostly because my editor was like, dude, that's a whole different book. You know, you can't just slip this <laughs> slip in here. This in the, yeah. um, but I, I got to the point where I was yeah, I'm making the argument like, okay, civilization actually on aggregate in my opinion is not an improvement in human life like you were talking about earlier if we assign sort of a score. life human life satisfaction score mm -hmm. you know the average around the world right now would probably be pretty low whereas in hunter-gatherer times the average was pretty high people you talk to any you know any case where the hunter-gatherers are offered the opportunity to join civilization mm -hmm. they flee mm -hmm. yeah I, I tell a story about Darwin and on the ship there were these three people who had been brought to um, to England and met the Queen and saw how you know, civilized people lived and the idea was they were taking them back to Tierra del Fuego and they would put them there with a house and a garden and they would tell the native people like no no we should be nice to those British people because they've got the greatest life they really know how to live and instead they abandoned the house abandoned the gardens and just fled back and lived the way they had mm. um and uh, they got jemmy buttons when they darwin and uh the crew were back there they found this guy and they brought him on the ship and he had lived in england for a year or two he you know spoke english and he and darwin wrote in his journal that he was uh very pleased to see that at least he still remembered how to use a knife and spoon and <laughs> fork and all that and they said to him like why did you abandon the gardens and the huts we built and all the stuff and and he's and, and they offered to take him back to england if you want to come you can come with us to england he's like he said no man there are plenty birdies plenty fishies he's like 
why do you guys want me to work? I don't understand. Or the guy in the Kalahari who said, the Kung San man who said, why should I learn to farm when there are so many mongo mongo nuts in the world? Mm. Like hunter gatherers look at the world and they say, I got everything I need here. Mm -hmm. This is fine. Mm -hmm. I'm happy. We're good. It's the civilization, people from civilization who want to impose, who insist. It's like, you know, white man's burden we have to go and civilize them we have to show them this is the way to live you have to live this way god won't forgive you for being a heathen you have to join us that's the insistence right it's not coming in the other way the other the other way they're like hey we're good you do what you do just leave us alone mm -hmm. right so it's a very interesting sort of flip where you know these neo hobbesians and and then go back in time the the missionaries and you know all the sort of explorers they're all out there pushing this way of life that they think is superior so clearly superior mm -hmm. and yet you have to literally kill people destroy their culture in order for them to submit to this way of life mm -hmm. that's so superior it doesn't make any sense logically um, you know, wow. I quote from Darwin's letters that he wrote back to the king and queen of Spain on his first uh, voyage to Hispaniola, and he, um, he writes about how amazing the people are. He says they're, they're uh, beautiful, they're healthy, there's food and fish everywhere, all the trees have fruit, it's like they live in paradise. In fact, some historians have argued that the word Indian doesn't come from the idea that Columbus thought he was in India. It comes from the fact that in these letters he said, Seguramente es gente que viven en Dios. In Dios. In, in Dios. In, right. In God. In God. Exactly. Wow. Right. Yeah. In paradise. In, in paradise. Heaven, right. Because they had so much abundance. They had abundance. They were happy. They were generous. If you express admiration, he says this, if you express admiration for any possession, they immediately give it to you. Um, they're they're uh, wow. ignorant of war. He says they're the the I forget the phrase, but it's roughly it's they're the the most beautiful people in the world. And then the next sentence he says, "With fifty men, I could subjugate them all." Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So who's living the superior life there? Right? Who's got the better approach? What if Columbus and his men had just been like, you know what, the hell with Spain, we're staying here, which happens, uh, which happened many times actually in the course of history. The mutiny on the bounty was an example of that, where the men on the ship mutinied because they wanted to stay on that island mm -hmm. rather than go back to England and continue their miserable lives on that ship. Yeah. So there are many historical examples of this wow. sort of thing. Uh, wow. Some of which I cite in the book here. I don't remember what your question what was. What a big but picture perspective on um, this big board game. We like thinking about it like a big game of Sims or a big game of Risk and Monopoly that we're all embedded in. And in that sense, it's like you know you're sending out the ships because in many ways, are you going out with a big loving heart to try and go and 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 trade with other people around the world and learn about who they are and see what they're what they've creatively made or are you going there to literally push your uh religion and dogmas and try and just pillage their resources and try and take over their land with your army and you know do the little risk movement where you get your color on their land and 
uh, I think that, you know, sometimes like you indicated, they come and they see that, wow, is it really this beautifully interconnected with nature, their lives and so much abundance and so much uh, prosperity that maybe we should just stay here. And, uh, and, <clears throat> and then I think this also is really important to mention is just that a lot of people will say, well, don't be so uh, in love with the past because there were aspects of the past that weren't so uh, pretty as well. And I think that's also uh, very true and very important. Although you do disprove some of those things. You say that all the people that say that there are issues with um, dental hygiene, that uh, dental hygiene uh, wasn't an issue in the hunter-gatherer days. It only became an issue when we started eating grains in our in our agricultural uh, domestic agrarian days and that um and so there, there's things like that but there there's also like uh uh in a sense it, it one day something did happen where it was uh uh alan has this stuff and claims it's his stuff and chris has this stuff and claims it's his stuff and then i'm like well why does chris have more stuff than me uh and why is his wife prettier and why does he have a bigger cave bop on the head and so there was that as well uh so there's like that but it's compared to also this beautiful interconnectedness so, yeah but yeah. also let's look at that a little closer okay. because in terms of the metaphor that you're using chris has more stuff than me so we're talking about uh culture with accumulated resources mm. Hunter-gatherers don't have accumulated resources. They're nomadic and moving nomadic. to the to the spot, exactly. uh, uh, harvesting, and then just taking what they need. What they find, and they yeah. use it. It's The technical term is immediate return hunter-gatherers. So immediate return. Immediate return. So they find fruit, they eat it. Eat it. Right? They yeah. kill something, they eat it. Yeah. Uh, and then they move on the next day. There's no fridge. <laughs> there's no fridge. They're not... Now the 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 there's other no grain like agriculture. There's yeah, no yeah. grain, and and a, a more relevant example would be um, the the Pacific Northwest people who had massive salmon runs seasonally, mm -hmm. and they learned to smoke salmon. Ah. And so they would harvest the salmon during the salmon run, smoke it, and then they would have that in the winter to, to eat. eat. Now, what happens? So that's sort they, of like an agricultural society. Was there some overfishing that occurred then? Not the overfishing, okay. but they became hierarchical, warlike. Oh. Women became very low status. They had slavery. So they wow. essentially became like agricultural society. So it's the accumulated wow. resources that triggers this political change and the change in the relationships between men and women and other human beings, because now you have possessions. When you have possessions, you need to decide who gets to keep them, who gets to distribute them, you know, who protects them. Wow. Who, so you, you get these political hierarchies that develop very quickly. Damn, so that's the trigger moment is you know as you start smoking the salmon and you're able to store it longer then it's like well why does he have six salmons and i only have one over right. the winter exactly and and then and so that's so interesting so as soon as there's like possessions well um, one more time was immediate need immediate return immediate return right. hunter -gathering. and these others in the pacific northwest are technically referred to as complex hunter gatherers complex but they're not really hunter gatherers that's the thing so yeah and the, this is, you know, you mentioned Steven Pinker earlier. He plays with this stuff. There's immediate return hunter-gatherers, which is what our ancestors were, right? 
Uh, there may have been some complex hunter-gatherers in some parts of the world, but they would have been limited to areas with a salmon run or something like that, right? Uh, and we're presuming they learned how to smoke salmon and preserve it. No one really knows for sure. Um, so you got immediate return, complex, then you have horticulturalists who have, uh, they hunt and fish, but they also have gardens, domesticated animals, pigs normally, okay. and like in Papua New Guinea, and they build um, static settlements. So they build a longhouse or they build buildings that are meant to be there for a long time. Mm. It's not a teepee or a wigwam or something that you stay in a night or two and then mm. either break down and take with you or just abandon. Um, now, the complex hunter-gatherers and the horticulturalists, they have resources. They have accumulated resources. Yep. You've got pigs, you've got a building, you've got gardens. So you've got something worth fighting over. So hierarchies form. You can see the evolution of a hierarchy right. starting as resources accumulate. That's it. A, a hierarchy forms in response to the presence of accumulated resources. That's so interesting. Right. So then when you get into these discussions of whether or not war was ubiquitous in prehistory, which Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins and Michael Shermer uh, are, are very um, sort of adamant about. My question to them is, why do you think people were risking their lives to fight when there was nothing worth fighting over? Mm. There were no resources. So I understand if you've got a garden and you've got pigs and you know over in our valley, the, the, the rains don't come and so there's not enough to eat, the trees aren't fruiting, we might come over and raid your your village to get some of those pigs we're starving of course we are mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but if you don't have any pigs if yeah. you're like us and you're just moving around doing immediate the best return. You, immediate return yeah. there's nothing to get from you yeah yeah Right, you have nothing except maybe some of these uh, uh, other. Maybe you found a couple pieces of gold uh, somewhere, or you found a couple. But gold things. is of no value to hunter gatherers. So, yeah, That's yeah. a civilizational thing. You maybe you found um, some sort of a, a a better weapon that can um, that can uh, uh, that can kill the animal that you're looking to hunt. You have some obsidian so, or something. Obsidian. So so there may be something that they have in a even in an immediate return uh, hierarchy that. Um, makes it so that people would want to commit um, violence. Maybe I don't but think it so. Sounds though. much less um, uh, possible than uh, uh, what y you indicate, which is that as right. soon as you have a, um, you called it. Uh, what were the next ones? Hort a horticultural society. Horticultural right. societies. Right. So that that creates then the smoked salmon example is great, or also the um, just the accumulation of resources at all um, begins. Um, yeah. That process. There's something That's great. There's something That's worth great. fighting yeah. over. Yeah. And remember, hunter gatherers are all armed. They're all armed. All are armed. Yeah. And they know how to use those weapons, right? They hunt. So it's very risky to attack a group of hunter-gatherers. They're very alert. They're armed. They're very fit. They're going to chase you down. They're going to shoot you. It's not a low-risk proposition. These are not... Uh like we call today keyboard warriors right yeah these aren't a bunch of angry dudes on twitter no these are badass dudes yeah so yeah so anyway that that's uh an interesting sort of I, argument I would, about war i would love for everything that you just said that is challenging the uh current zeitgeist around what um 
Pinker, Dawkins, Shermer, etc. are propagating. I would love for that to be a discussion that's actually had. Um, uh, I, I would love to see that on a show like ours or on Rogan's show or wherever it ends up being, but I would love to have. And I think Shermer actually had it um, um, also with... Um, uh, um, uh, remind me again, uh, uh, Gobekli Tepe, um, who was um, the author again of uh, of the um, now now Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock. Thank you, thank you for getting that one for me. Um, yeah, that uh, that Shermer had it with Graham Hancock at least on the program. Oh, on Rogan's show. On Rogan's show. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So those two got the chance to go back and forth. Graham right. and, and yeah, Shermer. and I've I've had Michael Shermer on my podcast twice i think yeah um and i will be on his in the next couple of weeks great and he's already and i and i actually i i warned him i was like dude you know you might not have had a chance to read uh civilized to death but i definitely take some shots at pinker and dawkins and i know you're friends with them so you know heads up but in a in a friendly way this isn't like again this isn't shots like uh we're trying to like uh be like commit harm against each other it's just literally like we want to settle the 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 world views the world views in the sense are like hey we want to get to the truth everyone's trying to get to the truth and if we can write out these core points about what you're saying the truth is what we think it is and then just see how those can interplay and find some sort of a really cohesive thing where they can give examples and say actually hunter gatherers behaved in this way and you can go they behaved in that way um, I think that can be really helpful, but yeah. it, just the discourse needs to happen rather than, again, it just seems like it's a dogmatic uh, uh, faith-based idea in progress that all progress, 100%, not even 99.9%, 100% of everything that's happened until today has been exceptional. Uh, and uh, all the progress, and so it yeah. just, um, it does definitely, like like we were saying, if you look back and see the interconnectedness, the respect to nature, the um, one thing and try and embed that in what we're doing in the future. But one thing that I, I, I do really have to mention with you that I thought so also fascinating. I was recently hanging out um, uh, with one of my friends, um, uh, Mish, and uh, she has uh, a, a ch- she has a chicken. She has a chicken coop uh, and she has chickens. And uh, she was teaching me about chicken hierarchies, oh, yeah. which are ridiculously fascinating. Pecking order. Pecking yeah. orders. Yeah. And, and so she goes, uh, she goes, the roosters um, are pretty uh, serious regarding like uh, getting into the, the, the sex with hens. And, um, and, uh, and I was like, okay, well, tell me more. And she goes, well, sometimes um, when when two roosters have both contributed to um, the hen, uh, uh, contributed, contributed yeah. as in semen, uh, to the hen, that the hen will birth, um, the, 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 the chicken that will birth from the hen will literally have visible genetic traits from both roosters. Mm. And that blew my fucking mind. Yeah. Because... You list this tribe in the Amazon. Lots of them. Lots of tribes yeah. in the Amazon and around the world. That again, we have this again. Let me put this into perspective. We have this very purist idea where I know people of specific nationalities, even my own nationality, which is like Armenian, mm. and uh, where my literally family friends will say things like, "I will not uh, have." 
sex with a woman that has had sex with anyone. She has to be a virgin. She has to be 100% Armenian. And then and only then will I uh, have, a, have a child with her because she is pure. Yeah. And it, I know that my seed is going to be 100% Armenian. And I'm right. like, damn, that is some straight up crazy cultural <laughs> lineage shit that, that is. Yeah. And versus like these tribes in the Amazon are like with these chicken examples is that a woman can go and find the smartest guy, the um, strongest guy, the funniest guy, and have sex with all of them in a short period of time. And then the child can basically potentially be 33 and a third percent from all three of those dads. And all three of them feel like they need to. Yeah. What an insane difference from monogamy. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, anthropologists refer to that as partable paternity. Partable paternity. And it's seen in at least half a dozen tribes in the Amazon that have no connection with one another, no trading or common language or anything. So it's clear that it has arisen in different parts of the world, also Papua New Guinea, and there are indications uh, in other parts of the world as well. So it's it appears to be sort of a natural conclusion. People didn't understand darwin didn't understand that one sperm cell was sufficient to impregnate a woman um you know so that's a pretty rel that's a relatively recent understanding so why would you make that connection if women are generally having sex and getting pregnant why would you conclude that the sex made them pregnant it, it rains a lot and women get pregnant. You don't say rain causes pregnancy, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and we talked about in Sex at Dawn, we talked about um, parts of the world where there's the belief that if a woman steps over a smoky fire, that'll get her pregnant or that the ancestral spirits just come down and inhabit a woman. And so in, in the partable paternity case, uh, they believe that women are uh, partly pregnant when they begins to menstruate uh, and that's an indication that there's a, a person possibly forming in there but they don't they sort of reach a tipping point when um, uh, a critical mass of semen is accumulated mm -hmm. so she has to have a certain amount of sex with men and then the semen literally congeals into a fetus wow yeah and so that's why the the essence of the different men that she's had sex with become materially and spiritually part of that child yeah. so when the child's born all the men who've had sex with her will feel a paternal connection to that to that baby um you know and the cooperative breeding was the other one part yeah. of paternity cooperative breeding yeah what interesting and, and cooperative um um raising of children too. think about then the child gets the really strong dad the really smart dad the really funny dad right. uh, to raise help and they get to do that for all the communal right because that's the not the only woman that those guys have been having sex, sex with. with so yeah. there's this you know the the overarching argument of sex at dawn is that our ancestors uh survived by cooperating with one another yeah. right and this gets us back to the raindrops and the love and yes. the you know uni unity and all these things we know without question immediate return hunter gatherer societies are organized around the principle of sharing and cooperation now for people who say ah oh, you know here we go with the rousseauian you know noble savage stuff i want to make it very clear that that what 
anthropologists have demonstrated is not that hunter-gatherers are more noble than we are in some sense. It's that sharing enabled them to survive. Yeah. It was simply the most practical approach to organizing a hunter-gatherer society. Yes. And hunter-gatherer societies constitute well more than 95% of our existence of our time in existence as a species. I'm talking about yes. anatomically modern human beings. I'm not even getting into, you know, previous versions of Homo sapiens. Yeah, we're talking out of the last 200,000 years, only 10,000 was agriculture. And now that, since I since Sexodon was published, that estimate's gone to 300,000. There have yeah. been discoveries yeah. in North Africa that seem to indicate that anatomically modern humans existed 300,000 years ago. So. Yeah, 10,000 years out of 300,000, and that's, you know, in the Fertile Crescent. That's not in most parts of the world where civilization came later. Uh, we're talking about, you know, if you want to understand your dog, you look at wolves and coyotes, right? Mm. Uh, that's the essence. Even mm. though your dog might be a poodle or a pug, its essence is a carnivore. It's a, it's a canid. And so that's what you that's what you want to study. If you want to understand us, you study hunter gatherers. That's Absolutely. what we are. A study your lineage, study the past in order to understand who you are right. and where you can optimally go. And you want to understand what kind of life is going to be satisfying and meaningful for this creature. Yes. You know, I, I use the zoo metaphor in the book where um you know, we are going to live in a zoo, as you were saying. What are we going to do in the future? What are, how are we going to design our world so that it'll be more healthy and satisfying for us as, as a species? Well, we need to understand the world in which we evolved. Yes. Right? Just like if you're designing a zoo, you want to design the enclosure to replicate as much as possible the natural environment of that animal so that it won't die or you know become suicidal or insane uh zoocosis is a term used by zoo designers and workers for animals yeah, that are yeah. so out of place they lose their minds right yeah, yeah. so do we want to live in the calcutta zoo which is just a bunch of concrete boxes or do we want to live in the san diego zoo that's designed around an understanding of the species we design the zoos that we live in we do so our cities our cities yeah. our office buildings yeah. the way we design corporations the way we design uh hierarchies the way we practice politics yes the food that we eat yes right all of this is is the result of choices that we make and if we make those choices informed by the sort of animal that we actually are not the propaganda that we're hearing telling us everything's great everything's better than it's ever been don't look back mm. that's the zookeeper Telling the animal in the cage to just shut up and be happy. Yeah. And you're lucky you're yeah, protected yeah. by your cage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, keep, stay heads down and keep building um, the prison walls that, uh, that are the metropolises, that are uh, um, the, the, the zoo cages that are uh, not as efficiently built as they could potentially be. And uh, I really like that analogy a lot. The zoo analogy is really good because we are the designers of the built environment that we uh, have the opportunity to put ourselves in. And if we uh, took that really reflective step that needs to be taken to see where we came from and how we could 
add these first principled um, methods of living with nature harmoniously, um, with the interconnected fabric of each other at a deeper level, um, with more community, with more love, with more sharing, with all these different things. And if we embed that going forward, you know, our cities would look completely different. Our hierarchies would look completely different. Our politics and our economics would look completely different. Yeah. And one of those things is this idea of inclusive stakeholding. Mm. That's something that is looking like more and more is the direction of where we're going. We are no longer looking at things from a, uh, actually, this is really applicable to hunter-gatherers too, is just that uh, you to be that I would tell you a story because it would benefit our collective genetic fitness for me to tell you that story about what to eat, what not to eat, about how to hunt, about uh, how to love, uh, how to be funny, how to be strong, etc. Now, stories are propaganda for self-dealing habits. Mm. I will tell you a story so that you buy my shit. Uh, and my shit isn't always conducive to your genetic fitness. You like these big, this big uh, picture view. So yes, I, I'll talk about you with something that I don't normally talk about in interviews because it's too far out. Um, remember, I said earlier there was a part of the book I had to pull out because the editor said no, that's a totally different book. Yeah, it, it was examining this question of why is civilization so powerful if it's actually not improving the quality of life for the average human being, and as I investigated that question, um, I, I started to see evidence. You mentioned the microbiome earlier, right? So there's, there's like a sort of a, a hierarchy of life. You have single-celled organisms. You know, Bruce Damer's mm-hmm. spoken about where, how they may have arisen, you know, converting solar energy into biological energy. Then you have multicellular organisms. Then you might have like uh, groups of multicellular organisms that function in, in some way collectively and so on and so on. And it increases in complexity. And at the pinnacle of complexity, we place ourselves because that's the way humans <laughs> tend to do things. And so here we are at the pinnacle of complexity. All this other, each stage of life is composed of simpler stages of life, right? It's each so, but here we are, we contain billions of cells in our guts and on our skin and in our blood and on, in the liquid over our eyeballs and all these cells are organisms that don't even share our DNA. So each of us, we act as if we're individuals, but each of us as, is in fact a complex system with billions of interacting organisms. Yeah. Each of us is a city, right? Yes, yes. Why do we think it stops there? Why do we think that that's the end of, it starts with single cell and it ends with humans? Mm. That seems unlikely to me. So my question was, okay, what are we embedded within? Mm. What other life form are we part of? Mm. that we're unaware of just like these organisms within us have no idea that there's somebody driving to Starbucks to get a coffee, right? Yes. And I came to the conclusion that institutions and more broadly civilization itself is an organism. It's an emergent intelligence within which we're embedded. So, you know, one example I often seeing use. it as the, the, the whole planet itself is 
um, the, the 8 billion human cells, but it's also all of the other 10 million species that are on the planet, and then they act as nodes as well. But the whole Earth orbiting this star is a cell in the universe. Right. I mean, the yeah, sort yeah, of Gaia yeah. hypothesis. Yes, yes, yes. There's a beautiful book called Lives of a Cell by Lewis Thomas that's like one of the classics of scientific literature from the 70s. Mm where he really gets into this notion. But I'm thinking of it more as, I mean, yes, th that's certainly true. Um, but for example, I was thinking, um, you know, I was talking with someone about this and about Exxon. And uh, I, I host, co-host, and co-created this thing called the Motherfucker Awards that happens in uh, LA. Mm -hmm. This will be the second year, December 3rd. And the idea is to celebrate the corporations that have done the best work fucking mother earth so right oh my and comedians gosh. accept the rewards on uh awards on behalf of the corporations uh -huh. so we have these you know great yeah. uh, la based comedians <laughs> yeah, yeah. who go up oh, and God. accept the award oh so it's for humorously to awaken people to uh, right. corruption and to uh, environmental pollution exactly right so it's it's a lot of fun yeah it's trying to laugh at the the, the dire state that we're in you know trying to bring comedy to it but bring awareness, awareness to these things yeah. that are happening yeah. right um anyway i was talking with somebody in in that context and they said you know chris the thing is like good people work at these companies like there are good people working at exxon and you're demonizing them and i i'm not talking about the people i'm talking about exxon exxon as an entity right or dupont or monsanto or whatever it is and the thing is, Exxon is a living thing. So if the head of Exxon, if the CEO of Exxon goes down to Peru with his son and does some ayahuasca mm. and has an epiphany mm -hmm. and suddenly sees the world as you and I do mm -hmm. and realizes what, what's going on and what his role in that has been. And he goes back to headquarters and has a meeting on Monday morning saying, gentlemen, we need to stop this. We can't do this deep water drilling. We can't be on the North Slope. We, we have no idea what we're doing. We can't pr protect the planet. We what's going to happen? He's out. He's out before lunch. And what if the board of directors happens to agree with him? They're out. What if the whole company goes and does ayahuasca? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What would happen? Yeah. They would all be fired and other people would replace them because people don't run companies. Companies run people. That's my point. Civilization does not serve us. We serve civilization. There's something going on here on a macro level, level. that we're barely able to perceive. We're Every, crickets trying to imagine the big game. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, or another analogy would be uh, termites. Mm -hmm. every, every termite's doing something that seems to make sense to him, and somehow this giant termite mound is built. Yes, yes. Right? Uh, salmon a, schooling, birds flocking. Nobody's, nobody knows what's happening. It just happens. It seems like a as elon said a biological bootloader for digital super intelligence well that's one of the possibilities that i'm not real happy about but certainly it feels as if we may be a, a larval stage for another life form that's emerging out of us that's sort of a, a, a merging of of technology and biology we already see it 
you know, with the artificial hips and the pacemakers and the LASIK surgery and the implanted lenses and the oh, Google yeah. glasses and, you know, all this staring at our phones. We've, you know, externalized a lot of our brain functioning. It seems to be going in that direction. Uh, and that doesn't bode well for us because that life form doesn't need clean oceans or fisheries or coral reefs or any of the other things that we value as human beings. So at the end of Civilized to Death, I sort of go down, I look at three potential futures, and that's one of them. This, if we keep going the direction we're going, it's a further merging of, uh, of our biology with a technology and a continued destruction of the natural environment because it doesn't it's have, necessary. It doesn't have to go that way. It can be the merging with technology and um, have it be very uh, spiritually, ethically, morally, philosophically grounded in interconnectedness with nature. It can be both. It could, but I tend to agree with um, Tristan Harris's view of technology, which is that it's not neutral. It has an agenda that's built into it. Uh, and generally, the agenda of technology is not in alignment with um, the things that make people happy and, and feel meaningful and involved. I think technology generally favors the centralization and concentration of power and resources, which is what we're seeing, right? With greater income inequality and wealth inequality in the United States than has existed ever in the history of this country. The technology is not creating, uh, is not dispersing resources more equitably. You know, we, every time they sell it to us, they tell us that's what it's going to do, right? Airbnb is going to help everybody. Uber is going to help everybody. It's the sharing economy, but somehow the resources end up not being shared. Well, that's the inclusive stakeholding solution that we were talking about earlier, literally, where the drivers get tokens, as well as the customers that take the car rides get tokens that then earn an inclusive stakeholding membership uh, ownership of uh, the the fruits that are being created by the the gig economy. And that is a ma massive part to our future. And that same thing can be applied to teachers and their students. It can be applied to physicians and their patients. This inclusive stakeholding idea and then it makes it so that at least the benefits of the big uh, merging with technology are a more interconnected with nature. We keep that, but also the fruits are shared with uh, all people as best as possible. What are the other two um, potential options that you wrote about? Uh, well, one was a sort of Mad Max post-apocalyptic, you know, nightmare <laughs> scenario where you know, global economic and, and ecological collapse, and we end up in some sort of, uh, you know, crazy, horrible uh, period of you know, cannibalism and <laughs> whatever else was in that movie. Um, but the third, which is the one I, I really hope uh, that we can achieve, it involves... Uh, the hero's journey, you know, Joseph Campbell, yeah. hero of the thousand faces. So what Joseph Campbell explained is that the great mythologist explained that every society around the world has essentially the same origin myth, um, which is a narrative of a young person going out and, you know, think of the Odyssey, right? Uh, having experiences, meeting strange characters, learning lessons, facing challenges, almost dying, etc., and then returning 
and bringing back the knowledge yes. that uh, has been received on that journey. I quote T.S. Eliot toward the end of the book. There's a great line from the Four Quartets mm. where he wrote, uh, we shall not cease our explorations and the end of all our exploring will be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. I love that one. Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. Uh, yeah, or the the line from uh, Whitman that I began with. I'd never, I just happened upon it. I'm glad you have both Whitman and uh, Eliot in there. That's great. Yeah. yeah. He says, uh, the friendly and flowing savage, who is he? Is he waiting for civilization or past it and mastering it? Mm-hmm. Right? So there's this sense mm-hmm. that as a species, it feels to me as if, we've been on this journey, right? We left home when we developed, agri- when, when agriculture started, that's when we left home, the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. All these, mm-hmm. these myths of the lost paradise are racial memories of the hunter-gatherer life where the gods provided for us. Mm-hmm. They weren't angry, vengeful gods, this Old Testament God that w- you and I have grown up with. They were gods that were that were nourishing and friendly and they mother earth gave right took care of us it was then then the angry father came on the scene and you thou shalt you know thou shalt eat by the sweat of thy brow thou shalt give birth in pain and agony you know all this like angry and and difficult um experience began with agriculture the struggle began with agriculture and this is where i disagree profoundly with richard dawkins and the neo hobbesians who claim that life before the state before civilization was a constant struggle there's no evidence for this Mm -hmm. no anthropologist has shown this Mm -hmm. hunter gatherers work on average 20 hours a week and what and what we're calling work which they have no word for in their language Mm -hmm. is hunting fishing and gathering food things that we do on vacation you know Um, so there's no evidence that, that life was a struggle before agriculture. It certainly has been a struggle ever since. Oh, when you when you can't find the next uh, patch of food, it's a uh, yeah, when you have to. F- well, there was there struggle. were difficulties. Yeah. There were um, brief periods of hunger. We can read the bones uh, in a, in mm. archaeological digs that show that hunter gatherer nutrition is high is much better than agriculturalists they were bigger people if you look at the bones just before and just after agriculture arose in different regions you see universally um, indications of nutritional deficiencies in the agriculturalists in their teeth in their bones you see evidence of prolonged famine you don't see these things in the hunter gatherers because mm-hmm. they're eating 75 different types of plants and animals they're not dependent on one so if the crop fails, there's no problem for hunter-gatherers. They don't have a crop. It's the agriculturalists who are very dependent upon this. Anyway, the point, the, the larger point I was making as far as the three scenarios is, yes, there's the, the continued merging of biology and technology, the sort of Elon Musk, we have to go to Mars scenario. There's the everything just falls apart and we're, you know, revert to some sort of horrible, uh, desperate struggle for survival scenario. The third scenario is that we're on this hero's journey as a species. We've gone out. We've learned very important things. We've learned birth control. 
which is very oh, important. Oh, I see. So it's like we heroes journeyed out into cities and metropolises. Into this And we're going to take what we learned from it. And go home, right? Yeah. And we're, it feels to me that we're at this point. We're at the most distant point now. And we as a species are turning toward home because we're realizing how precarious things are. Yeah. We're seeing how far from home we've gone yeah. and how much we're suffering. Now, of course, my perspective is very biased, right? But I see evidence of this all around. You know, I'm at Whole mental, Foods. Mental, mental health, suicide. Oh, dude. A cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes. diabetes. Like health-wise, we're a mess, right? There's no doubt. We're the richest country in the history of the world, and we're a mess. We're addiction. Uh, you know, addictive behaviors, prison populations. Yeah. I mean, this is a disaster. Uh, any way you look at it, and yet people, it seems to me, but are, this equipment's pretty good to let us. Oh, sure, it's yeah, great. So, so there's it's some, great. there's like these, there's always this interesting dichotomous uh, struggle that happens between what we're what we're saying, like that mental health and that this issue. But then yeah. it's like, oh, but this equipment's enabling us to talk about it. So, do so we can? Well, but we could have talked about it sitting around a fire. The equipment doesn't allow yeah, us to this, talk. But this equipment enables it to be communicated. The memes can spread to right. millions of people right. around the planet that right. can then intake that into the worldview and go fuck i Dude, get that more. i'm with you so, i think so, podcasting yeah, yeah. is on a par with the invention of the printing press yeah exactly so, as, so, so we have to balance yeah. these things out so the idea is how do we yeah. take the excellent well, that's what i'm saying yeah. that's why i think we're turning toward home yeah because here we are we've got for the first time we've got this this uh interconnected global brain so things so memes ideas can spread in an hour they can go everywhere right you and i I assume there's no company between us and yeah. the audience, right? Well, except YouTube and Facebook and all these other streaming platforms. So, right. and then there's uh, the, some of the issues with censorship and stuff like that. Uh, well, demonetization. That's why I don't do that. And, yeah. Uh, and so you have to get your own. Um, uh, uh, you have to get your own website and your own advertisers and stream directly to there just to make sure that you can um, retain your sovereignty. Yeah. That's yeah. what I do. Yeah. I'm even transferring yeah. off Patreon because I don't want to worry about that. that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but we have this opportunity. You and I can. Uh, say anything we want mm -hmm. and uh nobody can stop us there's no there's no company between us and the audience yeah we it's good it's good yeah yeah we can we can keep we can keep rolling yeah. keep going yeah um and uh so what was i saying we're the, talking the, about taking so the so we're taking yeah. this knowledge that we've learned passive yeah. energy birth control uh, the understanding of what actually works for us uh as opposed to what we're told should work for us and we're taking that knowledge and going heading back toward home you know whole foods why is whole foods so successful because they don't use pesticides because it's healthy yeah it's more expensive but the idea at least is this is natural food the whole natural movement natural childbirth paleo movement mm. paleo diet f intermittent fasting mm. wim hof jumping in the mm. cold water like all yeah, these yeah. things are where we came from yeah uh, evolutionary medicine is a big deal now right yeah, yeah. so i think that what's happening the the success of sex at dawn clearly was mm -hmm. that it connected with a yearning that people had for like why isn't this working mm -hmm. right i love this person why why am i bored why mm -hmm. am i looking at other people mm -hmm. right and the resonance is Oh, I'm looking at other people because that's the sort of animal I am. I am. Right? I am so, an ape. I am a, an ape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all apes. apes. 
And that's what I was trying to do with Civilized to Death, was to take that, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, they're very similar in some ways. And what I wanted to do with Civilized to Death was take that same perspective and um, payoff and apply it to life in general exactly. not just the sexual aspect of it exactly which i thought was so brilliant that you took that abstract leap to that um, field because it actually puts you i think on par to be uh one of the more um like world leading intellectuals in the space of trying to get more people awakened to where our origins are and what we can learn from our origins as we move forward and also like you said what we can learn from building the cities and metropolises and also um embed that as well into some of our um older um ideologies and and try and move forward uh better like i that's again this big thing that i think i'm i'm taking away from um from where you're <clears throat> Uh, endeavoring into your next uh, uh, contributions to our world that I think are actually, you know, helping also awaken a lot of people to um, what are some of the most important conversations that we need to have. I saw you had Andrew Yang on your yeah. show. I think universal basic income is a very hunter-gatherer principle. Universal basic uh, uh, ownership or assets um, is the thing. In, uh, uni universal basic uh, stakeholding is, is right. yeah, is the is the it, idea. It's that, very hunter gatherer. Yeah. We're all in this together. We all take care of each other. And there's a great expression in, in uh, Africa: the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. <laughs> That's such a good one, right? I mean, you think about yeah. that; it makes sense. We yeah. survive by taking care of each other. Yeah. That's basic to our yeah. our identity as a species. And when we lose sight of that and we sort of externalize those functions, you know, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Give me the good neighbor. I'll take the good neighbor over the insurance company any day. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, again, it's like, let's see if I, let's see if we can get this, like, um, with this, uh, with this initial question of this, like, ultimate nature of reality that we're, that we were starting with, um, whatever is macro to even the levels of microbiome here human holding the microbiome what is holding the womb of the human civilization the planet macro perspective there what's happening at this ultimate nature reality level and also like our trajectory where we came from hunter gatherers what we can take from that process what was actually really good there those ideas there what can we take that is good from the cities and from the metropolises that we live in what can we do with these two with this evolutionary trajectory bringing these things together to move forward in a way that's more optimal and in a way that understands the macro perspective of what is the purpose of this experience and where should we be going that is most optimal um that maximizes flourishing that makes it so that more people can come and endeavor into consciousness and maximize their creativity and have meaning and have love and have um that that seems to be the function and another part of it seems to be that uh, you use science and you poke at the initial source code that we were created with and then instead of thinking about things linearly you think about them cyclically and so we've discovered what the initial source code is that evolved to complexity and then we embed that initial source code in complexity and make another cycle and this is kind of like an ouroboros style of source or of creation that we're just mm. embedded in 
but we can decrease the amounts of suffering we can increase the amounts of flourishing and um, in order to do that we have to look at our roots we have to look at hunter gatherers um, and, uh, and 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 we also have to look at what has been good about the cities and metropolises that sure. we live in today and, and we have to be honest great. about the fact that that not all uh, ad, not all advancement is progress that not all movement is movement in the direction we need to be going and until we question some of the fundamentals, this faith-based belief in progress, then we're not able to think about what do we want to keep and what do we want to abandon, right? It's just this this sort of panicky insistence that we uh, revere everything that we've done. Like, no, that's nonsense. We we are capable of picking and choosing, right? Uh, You know, in my opinion, solar, wind energy, great great idea geothermal works beautifully and nuclear i don't see it head to nuclear fusion though maybe but do we need it because i think one of the one of the shibboleths that we need to question is this idea that growth is necessary we need to constantly be growing economies need Mm -hmm. to be growing this is a very agricultural a uh, post-agricultural view because agricultural societies are in this ratcheting process that population keeps growing so you need more land you need more intense uh, uh, cultivation techniques you need more food because the population keeps growing and it's, it's it just spins mm-hmm. right um, hunter-gatherer societies are sustainable you have a steady population it, it uh, ebbs and flows with changes in the environment the natural environment um, and so it's sort of a steady state situation. I think one of the lessons that people are most resistant to, but that I think is most essential to the kind of world that you were just describing, is the realization that maybe 500 million people on this planet is the right number. That's where... That's the Georgia Guidestones number. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I just I just pulled that up. I didn't know so 500 million is the Georgia Guidestones number. 500 million people living uh, harmoniously with nature. And right. That's the, really the oceans recover. The stones, yeah. The, you know, the, 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 with that amount of people on the planet, we wouldn't probably be interfering with natural processes, right? So we're heading there in some senses with the population stabilization. You can look at the canary and the coal mine in Japan. Yeah, like only in... In developed con- places. Very yeah. developed countries. Yeah. That, less religious and also right. um, less uh, developed have... Or more religious and uh, less developed have uh, more kids. Right. right. And if those countries were living the way in terms of resource uh, consumption, the way mm. people in yeah. Yeah. you know Spain and, and Japan were living, then... Uh, yeah, the world would be pretty bad. So I think, you know, that's why I look at universal basic income or some sort of, um, you know, global security system yeah. so that you uh, disincentivize people from having lots of kids in order to have some security in old age. If they knew like, oh, I don't need to do that. We already know where women uh, are allowed to be educated and have decision uh, making. They have far fewer children. Um, so if you yeah. had like a universal movement in the direction of respect for women, women allowed to make their own reproductive choices and incentives to not have kids. You don't, I'm not talking about eugenics. I'm not talking about killing anybody or any cra- yeah, crazy yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying make it beneficial for people to have fewer kids, make it 
um, you know, I don't have kids. I talk about it all the time on my podcast. Like, I love not having kids. I'm really glad. I love kids, yeah. other people's kids, and I wish I lived in a tribal situation where I could take care of those kids sometimes and let my friends go off and go to the movies and yeah. share that. Yeah. And in fact, I'm in the process of setting up a situation like that now. That's really interesting. I want to know more about um, that. Can you give us any sneak peeks into that? Uh, yeah, I'm not ready to say where it is yet yes, because yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's still very early. Um, but I'm in the process. I bought land there, mm -hmm. and um, uh, my closest friends, I want to give them the opportunity to come and buy land and get in on this. Mm -hmm. And once they've decided what they want to do, then I'm going to talk about it publicly and let people who listen to my podcast or your podcast or whatever, mm -hmm. if they're interested, come. It's a very... It's a beautiful place. It's very cheap. Yes, yes. Uh, b clean air, clean water, proximity of nature, uh, big yes. airport not too far away. Yes, yes. And what we're basically, it's not a commune, right? It's everyone, you buy your own place, build your own house, do, but there's no building code. So you can live in a yurt, you can build a teepee, you can build a normal house, you can do straw bale, an earth ship, whatever, whatever you want. Um, and the idea is that we take care of each other. Yeah. That's it. So you have kids and you want to go to the city for the weekend? Sure, we'll watch your kids. You know, you want to take off and Airbnb your place? Fine, we'll be around. We'll do it. We'll watch your dogs. When we take off, you take care of us. It's very basic, you know. We grow spinach. You grow apples. That's it. We have friends who do chickens. So yeah. have, we have another friend who's an auto mechanic. He'll fix our cars, you know, yeah. whatever we... So... You know, this might sound like communism to some people. It might sound like hippie, you know, commune. I think these things work on small scales. They don't, yeah. you know, anarchy doesn't scale. It works when there's reputational damage. It works when we all know each other. And if you act like an asshole, everybody knows. And somebody talks to you and says, hey, dude, that wasn't cool. And then, you know, that's an organic way for us to interact as people. When you scale up to the level beyond Dunbar's number, which yep. I'm sure you're familiar with, yep. right? When you get past that, other people become abstractions, reputational damage yes, yes. no longer functions, and you get someone who, you know, rips people off. Yeah, the self-dealing habits come. And this has yeah. actually been something we've talked about the show with Ari Nazem and a bunch of other um, young people that are also pushing into this field of creating communities of about 150 people each and then um, having those communities be um, uh, take some of these hunter-gatherer habits and communal habits into them and then um, also interface with the, uh, with the growing tech world and interface with other communities right. in that sense. So, and that's, like a, that's the thing where technology has been really helpful, right? Because more and more people don't need to be in a given place it can work remotely and so if you're making 100 grand a year you want to live in silicon valley or you want to live in idaho because in idaho you're rich in silicon valley you're poor mm -hmm. right so yeah. the opportunity but in silicon valley you're closer to the network effect and so you're closer to people that are higher up on this intelligence fitness landscape but then again how often are you actually interfacing with them versus you know they're not in your technical dunbar number maybe Right. And what are you aspiring to? What are you aspiring to? Do you want to be as rich as possible financially or do you, or do just you want, want to be quality of life? Qual well, I, and I think um, these are not mutually exclusive things in the sense that um, you can 
uh, aspire to network with the, some of the smartest people in the world and maybe you do find them in uh, the Silicon Valley or London or whatever Dude, else. Dude, I'm questioning that premise. I, I, I do too, in a sense. Um, I do too, in a sense. I've been all over yeah. the world. Yeah, you've been The smartest people I've met haven't been too. in Silicon Valley. And your podcast guests are excellent. Your communications are excellent <laughs> as well. And so I, yeah. I, I agree that, um, that like, it's not like everyone that works at Google or Facebook is fucking brilliant, right? And, and actually, a lot of the time, um, we see that some of the smartest people that we've had the chance to sit down with, um, some of the most spiritually activated and actualized and interconnected with nature and most um, also interconnected with science and most entrepreneurial people are the ones that are uh, off the grid, that are uh, way less uh, con- uh, uh in, in into the indoctrinated into the metropolises and and uh, and that style of of uh, they're not people that are trying to like get rich they're people that are trying to help awaken and like catalyze spiritual actualization and and unity with nature and uh, and spreading that style of vibe around and asking some of these grand philosophical questions with our merging with AI and the technological singularity. So I think people like that are some of the smartest people and sometimes they're found in Metropolis, sometimes they're not. But you mentioned this just a couple minutes ago and I just want to illustrate it because I think it helps so much that if you believe that, uh, that, that when you look at hunter-gatherers compared to the Metropolis to where we're at today, that if you look at that and you say that there's nothing good about hunter-gatherers and there's 100% good about metropolises and cities, you are sadly mistaken. We ask you to please reconsider that aspect of your worldview. Look back at hunter-gatherers, look back at their interconnectedness with nature, look back at their interconnectedness with each other and some of their best practices and try and go back and fetch those best practices and embed them in what we have now today right and get rid of some of the cancerous aspects to our civilization today include inclusive stakeholding include the future of our social fabric that can maximize flourishing um, and that can potentially look like some of these small uh, interconnected communal situations uh, that Um, We're really excited for that, and hopefully um, we can uh, revisit more conversations like this. I hope that, um, like I said, when you visit, or like we said, when you visit uh, Shermer's podcast in the future, when he comes on yours, you're going on his. I think I'm going on his next, yeah. So when that happens, um, uh, do... uh, We did this the second time that we hosted Shermer on our show. We did our best to help... Um, zap a little bit of that hunter-gatherer nature spirit into him and it actually did a decent did a, did a good job he, yeah. he resonated with it so yeah. um, the more that we can do that and the more that we can illustrate out like here are here are ways that both you know, Pinker or Shermer or Dawkins have great things that are being said and also some of the good, you know, Christopher Ryan things that are being said around hunter-gatherers and Graham Hancock stuff can actually be embedded and intertwined together. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, the truth is always somewhere in the middle, right? And there's always, as long as you're coming into the conversation with uh, respect for the research, for the data, um, and, you know, not imposing your worldview on it, I think... uh, yeah, it's always useful. I, my conversations with Michael Shermer have always been 
interesting and respectful. Likewise. And, yeah. Totally likewise. I think he's a Love him legit a lot. dude. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, two quick questions on the way out that we ask all of our guests. The first question is, do you think we're in a simulation? <laughs> uh, I think we may be someone's dream. Does that count? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we may be in a dream. Why do yeah. you think that? Because... Because I have seen, you know how when you're dreaming and maybe there's smoke nearby and you start dreaming of fire, you integrate this thing that's happening in the external world into your dream or an alarm goes off and suddenly you're in school and the bell's ringing, you know, your dream incorporates these things. Um, I've had experiences in my life that felt like they were incorporations of something that was happening in another dimension and it was being incorporated into my consciousness here. I don't know if that is comprehensible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've had experiences yeah. that are inexplicable. We still don't know what is going on. Um, with sleep we know that we're clicking the save button we know that it's really important for our biological physiology and stuff but we don't know what's happening with the theory of parallel universes and the multiverses and uh what's actually happening with uh where we're going what's what's right. occurring we don't know why it's essential we don't i mean some animals sleep with half their brain, brain and you yeah. know there's also um hypnosis we don't understand mm -hmm. placebo we don't there's a lot of gravity we don't understand i was talking with joe yeah, and yeah, he, he said that, yeah. he mentioned that to uh neil yeah neil and neil yeah. got really defensive he's like we can measure it we yeah, yeah but the fact that you can measure something doesn't mean you understand it right it doesn't mean you understand how it works mm -hmm. you know for until the 1970s no one understood how aspirin worked and we yeah. could measure it you take more aspirin you feel less pain like you can measure its effect but that doesn't mean you understand the mechanism. It doesn't mean you understand what's going on. It just means you do this, that happens. Okay, fine. That's not understanding, you know? Uh, and I think that a lot of our approach to understanding life is like that. It's like, well, you can measure it. That doesn't mean you understand it. Uh, I have one of my mentors is Stanley Krippner, who's uh, spent his life studying parapsychology, and he's done all sorts of interesting research and dreams and myths and um, you know, extra uh, sensory perception and all this kind of stuff. So I've spent a lot of time talking with him about those things. But yeah, I've had experience. I spent my. He'd be a great guest uh, on on the show. Is he, yeah. Is he, well, he's, he's well into his eighties. He's in his eighties. Yeah. Where's he based? You know. Uh, Fairfax. Fairfax. Up north of San Francisco. Okay. Cool. Maybe we. I'm gonna see him in a couple days. Cool. Cool. Yeah. He's, maybe. Uh, maybe it would be cool to maybe visit him on site, or if he's down in the area, we could maybe have him on. Yeah. Because I, we I love that field. I took him down to Rogan, and you put, did. Yeah. He was on Rogan's show a couple oh, of years so ago. Oh, so cool. Yeah, yeah. That's great. It was fun. He's. He's an amazing dude. He hung out with, like, you know, people I'm sure you're very interested in. He was the youngest of that crowd of Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley and yeah, um, uh, Alan Watts. Like, he oh, knew all so these people. Cool. Yeah. So cool. Joseph Campbell. He'd be a great, yeah. he'd be a great person to amplify the messages more around the world of what he has. He's, yeah. and he's, yeah. he's a really sweet dude, too. Yeah. He's, he's wonderful. Yeah, I'll, I'll put you in touch with him. Let's see what um, 
But yeah, so I, I Could feel be a dream. Could that be a this dream. is a dream yeah, and occasionally yeah. something from the other <laughs> dimension yeah. pops in. Yeah, like deja vus, all this type yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Okay, the last question okay. that we like to ask our guests is, what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? The world itself, you know. Uh, there's a reason that nature touches us. There's a reason that... To me, a sunset, the waves rolling up on the beach, uh, a, a woman's body, music, these things are all pieces of one thing. They're yeah. all the same. I, I was talking to an ethnomusicologist on my podcast, mm -hmm. and he made the point that, like, you know, someone asked me recently, what is the. Th he said it really interesting. It was like the delta. What's the greatest delta between your understanding of a thing and your appreciation of a thing? Ah. Mm -hmm. And I said music. Mm. Because I don't understand music at all. But I appreciate but I it so much. I love it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good I one. I feel it so much. Or reality for that sense. If you're going to go yeah. macro, <laughs> like, yeah, everything, you know, yeah, but that's yeah. not a good yeah, answer. Yeah, no. But yeah, it's like in this ethnomusical. There's a pretty big delta between how much we respect um, reality and how much we understand it. Like, we love reality uh, from some, a lot of us, but we very. <laughs> I don't know if I love reality. <laughs> oh, come uh, on, Chris. There are aspects of reality I could do without, let me tell you. Okay, okay, uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like. Uh, you know, for me, a book like this is it's a love letter to to the natural world because I feel like yes. that's you know, every dog yearns for the days when he was a wolf. Yes. You know, yes. every every fish in an aquarium is yearning for the ocean. Like there's a reason those things resonate with us. It's because that's where we came from. That's what created us. Yes. Right. If there's a God that created human beings, it was the African savanna 500,000 years ago. Right. That was what made us. Yeah. And so there's a reason golf courses are so relaxing to our minds because mm. we look at that and we see the world we're meant to inhabit. Habit. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, it's. That's why the top viewed uh, channels right now in uh, is, is, this is what I've learned about China. Have you ever seen our uh, primitive technologies YouTube channels? The ones where it's literally the videos of the guys that go out like hunter gatherers and they build like houses and mm. they make shoes yeah. and stuff like that out of all of the stuff that you find in the woods and, and like stuff like that. That's actually some of the most popular channels here. And it's apparently the most popular viewership in China. Really? So literally civilization as it's moving into metropolises and cities misses hunter-gatherer society so much that it becomes the most popularly viewed things on the internet right but that's the tragedy right that we destroy the real the, the real uh thing and then we sell with commercials and plastic packaging some cheap copy of that thing that's what we do we pollute the water and then we sell bottled water we pollute the air and then we sell air filters for your bedroom. This is the trajectory of civilization that I'm hoping we're turning away from. And yes. we're saying, wait a minute, instead of creating Ooh, air like filters. It's like a boomerang. Yeah. Like we throw out into cities and metropolises, gather what we learn from that experience, and we come back to nature and the interconnectedness. Right. Exactly. I hope.
I hope that's where we're going. It's better than that Mad Max thing. Chris, this has been so fun, brother. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, happy to. So freaking enlightening. Really appreciate you coming on. And congratulations on all the incredible work that you've done with Thanks. Sex at Dawn, with Civilized to Death. Everyone, highly, highly recommend checking out all the links in the bio below. Uh, ChrisRyanPhD.com is the website. Also, Civilized to Death, the book link is in the bio below. Check that out. Sex at Dawn, also the book link is in the bio below. I read the audio book, too. Yeah. So if my voice doesn't annoy you and you want an audio book, there you go. Hit that audio book as well. (laughs) You guys know we definitely are big fans of audio books. Definitely, that's a great point. You narrated it, which is great. also, check out um, his Twitter, his Instagram, and Facebook as well. Um, follow along the journey. Again, the podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. They've had over 400 episodes. Check that out. It's done from his van. Well, sometimes. Sometimes from the van. Yeah. Uh, the Vanthropology, as uh, Chris uh, is doing. I love that. Um, Scarlett Jovanson is such a funny name. Um, love that check all of that out everyone have more conversations with your friends families coworkers, people online about the concepts that we talked about in the show about what aspects of progress may actually be analogous to disease and about how we can then like a boomerang start with this nature and interconnectivity go out find what was good in the cities and metropolises bring it back to this nature and interconnectedness i love love this conversation so much again um for also for all of those um listening and checking this out um we would love for you to support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the leaders in your communities that you believe in, support them and help them grow, support simulation, our show, all of our links are below to our PayPal, Patreon, cryptocurrency, you can find all those links below, support us. Uh, and also, that's it, everyone. Build the future. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in.